0: This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with GoDigital at ScanMyPhotos.com. My guest today is Dr. Michael Pritchard, and he has written a book, A History of Photography in 50 Cameras. Michael, thank you so much. Welcome to The Photo Detective.
1: Hi, thank you, Maureen. It's such a pleasure to be here and, and to speak to you in person.
0: Yes, and I can see your library, so I'm just going to comment on it because I know my listeners love libraries. He has a double-decker library, guys. It has a ladder that gets to the second floor. That's how much material he has on the history of photography, which is very cool. Well, first off, I know you have this book, and it's wonderful, the sort of histories that focus on 50 interesting objects and how you tell a story through that. I, I love that storytelling vehicle. But before you wrote the book, you must have been collecting cameras. So what inspired that?
1: Well, what really got me started, it's probably like lots of your your listeners, that I was about 11 years old and I picked up one of these cameras, which is a vest pocket Kodak in a what we'd call a jumble sale in the UK. So a sort of flea market and a charity fundraiser. And it just got me hooked on the camera as an object. So I, I started doing a bit of research. I met some people that encouraged me in my collecting at that point, and really, you know, like most collectors, I started collecting any camera I could find. Everything from instamatics, cheap plastic cameras, and occasionally something a little bit more interesting. And then I sort of realised eventually that the, the cameras I really liked I couldn't afford. So I got more interested in doing research and I started collecting trade catalogs and the literature around photography and cameras as really as a means to doing research. And that ultimately, many, many, many years later, fed into the, the book that came out a couple of years ago, looking at the camera as an object through 50 cameras and then using those cameras as a jumping off point to look at everything from stereoscopy, popular photography, digital photography, but that the camera really has always been core to my interests.
0: And you at one point worked for Christie's as an auctioneer specializing in photography or just cameras?
1: Yeah, I mean I was incredibly fortunate and it's one of those situations where just being in the right place at the right time, but importantly with that historical knowledge and background, I got offered the job when I was finishing university and I was Basically dealing with cameras, but gradually that, that evolved to dealing with things like things like stereo cards, photographic books, and then for photographs in their own right as well through the auctions. So I ended up being an auctioneer, which was wonderful if nerve-wracking. But the the key thing, I suppose, working for any auction house is it gives you access to knowledgeable collectors who are, for the most part, generous in sharing their knowledge. So I learnt an awful lot. But I also handled and saw a lot. And that gives you a you know, real insight into to photography, in my case, and both the camera and the photograph. And, and it, you know, it's an incredibly incredible learning experience and going to see some of those big collections that were around in the late 1980s and 1990s in the States, in Japan, and elsewhere in Europe as well. So, yeah, I look back on those years very fondly.
0: Well, there are always those people that get, they're early in the curve of collecting. They find something, like you're seeing, you saw those big collections in the 80s and 90s. I mean, those people were probably collecting in the 60s when you could pick up a camera for a couple of dollars here in the United States. It wasn't something a lot of people had an interest in at that point. Yeah, I mean,
1: I suppose in some senses, I was there at the right time. And by, by the time we, we you sort of get to the mid-1980s, some of that very first generation of collectors were were looking then to sell those collections. So, you know, I handled some of the, the most important collections of cameras that came to the market at that time, and, and Christie's were leading the market in terms of what we were offering and the types of collections. So there were some really significant collections that either went through auction or we negotiated private sales and they've become national collections in in a number of countries. So it was just, you know, again, being in the right place at the right time. But then there's that next generation now that are coming, that came on after that and started buying some of that material, everything from mahogany cameras through to Leica especially. And now they're getting to a point where they're thinking maybe they want to do something with that collection perhaps we re- re- put it into the marketplace and let the next generation enjoy them and, and get something
0: from them. Yeah. I mean, it was a number of years ago now. I was just early in my, very early in my career and I was driving to my parents' house. So I was driving down the road and they had these tables set up on the lawn and there was a wooden box camera. I knew it was mid-19th century because I had just started work as a curator. And I pulled off to the side of the road and I Asked them, I was like, What do you know about this camera? Where did you find it? And they were like, Oh, we found it in the basement. And I said, Well, what would you, what are you going to sell that camera for? And they said, You know, $25. And that was pretty much all the money I had in my wallet for, for, you know, for a week or so. And I just shelled it out and it has a special place in my camera collection. And I think of it as the very first camera that I, ever collected but I wasn't going to leave it there on the side of the road and I'm I'm sure you've had the same experience where you come across a camera in an unexpected place and you have to have it
1: yeah and I think as collectors you know I think that that first camera you, you buy or the first photograph always has that special place it's not about the value in some ways because I think collecting some ways the the camera is about you know who you were with at the time where you happened to be how you found it if it was a bargain or not sometimes occasionally and I think You know those those cameras then become special in their own right, and yeah, maybe it's sentimental, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. But I suppose I I suppose I have found cameras like that. I'm struggling to think of an example now. I think some ways I think my interest moves from the camera into the photograph, and especially the photographic book, and that is where you know I do know that I have found some of the early manuals from the 1850s and 1860s just in a bookshop and got them for a reasonable price. But I think, again, as collectors, I think it's often the the things that we don't buy that we regret not having bought in retrospect. I mean, there's things I've seen go through auction and at the time it seemed a lot of money for it, but I've always regretted not having just gone that extra bid or just bought it through from a dealer because now obviously one can't go back to that point so it's always there in the background as something I wish I had or wish I'd bought so Uh, I generally when I'm buying at auction now it's not quite money's unlimited because it by far yeah it's certainly not unlimited but I think I do push out the boat sometimes and I've never regretted doing that at all
0: Right, it, I've spoken to a number of collectors and I know a number of collectors and it's always the one that gets away that haunts you. Yeah. yeah, I just bought a camera just a few months ago and I thought, oh, this is too much money and I really don't want to spend it. But I also knew that it was the one camera that I'd been looking for for years. So I was like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had a friend with me who just encouraged it. <laughs> it <was> bad, anyway. <laughs> Fifty cam- History of photography and 50 cameras. What's the earliest camera and why did you select that one? You know, what's the story there?
1: Yeah, I suppose, you know, it's the starting point of photography in some ways. I mean, photography is about the camera. It's about the chemistry and it's about the optics. So the, the book really kicks off by looking at the camera obscura as a jumping off point to talk about some of those early experiments and why people wanted to come up with a device like a camera that could record a scene chemically and instead of being you know instead of using an artist and it's the the story about Talbot Fox William Henry Fox Talbot the British inventor of photography and how he was a pretty bad artist and having seen some of his camera obscura drawings he he really wasn't that great his wife was wonderful and she really could master that but yeah, that's, it's that spur then that camera obscura as an artist aid didn't mean that you could become an artist. So Talbot then thought, well, how can I use chemistry? How can I use that device to help me get something which I am happy with and, and is satisfactory? And that set him on the path to inventing you know, today what we would call negative, positive photography. And over in France, Daguerre was also experimenting and he was a painter. He was producing these wonderful dioramas. So again, he was an artist essentially that saw an opportunity to, to come up with a chemical process working with Niepce and came up with the daguerreotype. So there's a there's a whole story that one can tell using the camera obscura. And then I, I talked next, you know, again predating the if you like the, the so-called invention of photography in 1839 by looking at Talbot's experimental cameras, his so-called mouse traps and how they were were a way that he was able to do all of his chemical experiments with these new devices that ultimately became what we call a photographic camera but allowed him to put a piece of sensitized paper into the back. He, he got the village carpenter to make this square box, used a microscope lens from his other scientific interests, and then used that to start experimenting with silver nitrate and all of those chemicals that ultimately allowed him to come up with his photogenic drawing process in 1839, which then became the calotype process when he patented it in 1839. 18- 41 and ultimately you know set the basis for photography right up to the digital age so you know the camera is an object and in its own right it has obviously some interest to people like you and I and a lot of your listeners but it's also a means to talk about some of the bigger stories around photography and and how you know the camera facilitated that and how photographers, pe- people like us and our forebears were interested in photography as a means of capturing our holidays and family events and those occasions?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this whole history of photography before photography, and you're talking about the camera obscura, which is a device to project an image onto paper, which then people could sketch or paint or whatever, which as you mentioned, is the precursor to photography. What would you say was, and then there are patents here in the United States that improvements on all of these processes. As soon as one is set, somebody says, I can improve upon that. So there's a ton of um, photographic patents. What would you say were the sort of most important improvements of the mid-19th century?
1: I suppose for me, you know, as a historian, I think I would probably be looking at the some of the chemical improvements, improving the sensitivity of those plates, so that you could start to photograph indoors or in low light, or cap, start to capture movement. So as soon as you know, Talbot and Daguerre announced their processes, there were chemists and photographers that began their own experiments in terms of improving the chemistry the camera itself yes of course that did evolve and it moved from boxes to devices with bellows so the camera could be made more portable and then as the sensitivity of the emulsions the plates improved then the camera could become smaller so you could then take it traveling and that sort of leads up then to the, the introduction of celluloid film in 1888, 1890 with, with the Kodak, which we all you all know in that 1888 date with the, the announcement of the Kodak is, is seared in most of our memories and, and most of your listeners, I'm sure. And then the box brownie. And I think for me, that little period between 1888 and 1900 with the, the, the first Kodak, the pocket Kodak, which came in the 1890s, and then the first Brownie in 1900 is a really key period because at that point, photography moves from being this profession, something that fairly serious, wealthy amateurs could really undertake to something that you and I and our, you know, our parents and our grandparents could do and not need to know about the chemistry and the technical side of photography and and. As we all know, that's where the Kodak really came into its own. George Eastman's classic slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. And it took took away all of that technical knowledge so that we could start to focus on you know, the p- things we wanted to photograph. The beach, Going to the beach, going to the parks, picnics, Christmas and Easter and all of those occasions, births, marriages – um and so we see a change in photography so photography moves from being a very formal means of recording someone to a much greater informality because the camera's out and about with people it's recording them in their everyday life so some yeah you know, some professionals were, were carrying what you know what were called detective cameras from the 1880s to try and record street scenes and people just going about their normal business the kodak and its contemporaries really allowed ordinary people to just capture ordinary scenes and ordinary everyday activities. And I think those pictures for me become, yeah, they're they're incredibly exciting, they're interesting because we can all relate to them because actually it's what we do today with our smartphones. We carry that smartphone with us. We capture those pictures in, you know, going out for a meal with events and parties and all the rest of it in the way that our, you know, Generate well, two or three generations ago, the Kodak allowed that new new type of amateur to do, and I think that's reflected in in the the marketplace as well. If you look at some of the auctions now in New York and elsewhere, then what you know what's called vernacular photography, the sorts of pictures that are grandparents and great grandparents would have been taking now have become artwork and and art, art forms in their own right and they've their meaning has moved from being something that just went into an album to something that goes onto the gallery walls and is enjoyed by a whole new group of people but the meaning's transformed completely
0: yeah i mean it's remarkable what happens uh in that sort of circa 1900 period family photo collections which Going to the studio, you had to have some disposable income to go. And suddenly people are showing you their private lives with these cameras and these pictures and the photo collections just explode in size. But also I think there's been a trade-off at that point where you have the beautiful detailed Daguerreotypes, or even the cabinet cards or even tin types have so much more detail and clarity than those little snapshots that we have. I mean, when you think about it, when you look at your Vespa, look open your little vest pocket thing that you have there, and you you look, the lens is you're looking through to focus is so tiny. And how did you, I mean, how did people, I think they just pointed it, shot the picture and hoped for the best.
1: Yeah, and I think what's interesting there is that actually, although ordinary people could take their own pictures for those really special occasions like weddings, engagements, for example, but the birth of, birth of a child then they would still go to a professional studio and have a professional photograph taken because yeah the quality is there and and again some of those professionally taken photographs from that period are wonderful because the quality you know you can blow them up to the size of a door and still see all of that detail and and i think in a way the pro- the photographic pro- profession, I'm sure, was slightly concerned about these new devices coming in that put photography in the hands of the ordinary person. But actually, in this country, certainly in the UK, the number of studios continue to grow from you know, 1900 onwards, right, really up to the 1950s and 1960s, before there started to be a bit of a decline. So, yeah, you know, people recognised the value that a professional photographer could add to their pictures, and these were really special. They were would go into a frame, they'd go onto the wall in a living room, or go into the you know the family album sometimes, and you know, they were really special objects that people preserved and wanted. I mean, it's the, the classic case. If 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 one's house was burning down, what would you say? Well, it's always the photographs it's always the family album because they hold the memories and those professional pictures particularly so because they're they are such of such good quality and they do give that representation of you know wives partners children that sometimes are our amateur snaps are, are not always quite there because as you were saying the you know the vest pocket kodak i'm holding at the moment has this very tiny lens and a very tiny negative and doesn't always quite capture what you hope it might do. But, yeah, the professional in their studio was able to do that.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And cameras, the whole idea of cameras. So you have Talbot, the negative in the print continues until the digital age. And you have daguerreotypes and amber types and, you know, the collodion stuff, the tintypes. And then, you know, the print and negative thing stays the same for... A very long time until it's replaced by digital photography, which wasn't that great in the beginning. And now, it now it's a revolution. It is. And I think that's yeah, I think you yeah, know,
1: there were these two long periods when photography didn't really evolve very much. So that period one from the 1850s, really up to the 1880s, 1890s, or so, and then from the 1890s. You're right, for another hundred years, it was pretty much there. Of course, there were improvements in cameras and films and all of that. But essentially, it was there. And then digital just suddenly comes in. And as you say, it wasn't that great initially. I mean, some of those early cameras, digital cameras, were were you know less than one megapixel, which seems to us now is crazy because that's you know, our phones have way more or better processing power and sensor size. But you know people picked up with digital quickly. And uh, what's interesting is that a bit like people are going back to analog photography today, some of those first digital cameras, those one megapixel, two megapixel cameras. The, the digital cameras that save onto the floppy disks from Sony, for example, Mavica, Actually, they're coming back now because people suddenly realise there's something about them from a creative perspective that offers something new and is a bit different to the perfection that our digital cameras and our di- smartphones would do. So a bit like analogue photography has come back to the fore, you know, people taking pictures on film and using a darkroom. We're seeing this return to the early days of digital. And I, yeah, I think I I would hesitate to say where photography is going to go in the next 100 years or even in the next five years. Of course, I'm sure there would be improvements, but you, is AI going to take over artificial intelligence? Is that going to take over? Is it going to another groundbreaker grand game changer for photography I would hesitate hesitate to predict where that's going now I think it's very much a, an open book and I, I'm sure at some point there's going to be something new that comes along and digital suddenly becomes the old technology as, as something else becomes the new technology and I think that's the exciting thing as a collector as a historian, that your know, photography has always changed over the last hundred and what eighty odd years. It's it's never stood still. It's moved from plates and glass plates and paper and celluloid and digital sensors. And you know, the, the how we look at the photograph has changed from daguerreotypes, you know, those wonderful Southworth and Hawes daguerreotypes, for example, which today still look absolutely stunning. Yeah, they compare extremely well to to photographs on paper from the in the 1900s, for example, and then you know the sorts of prints that we can produce from a inkjet
0: printer. But you know, artists are artists, so I'm sure they're finding some use for it. I can understand the return to analog, and uh, I was surprised when I went into the local camera shop and they were offering film development and film cameras. So, and there are still people doing tintype photography and amber types and cyanotypes and you know there is definitely a deep interest in these old photographic methods but I'm with you where this is all going right now I don't know I mean is AI going to take over and we're going to sit in our living room and say create me a holiday photograph with the following people in it sitting in my living room
1: Yeah, I sort of hope it doesn't go down quite down to that road because actually there's something, you know, photography is actually a very social pursuit. And, you know, whether it was in the old days when you might just be interacting with the photographer, the professional. But actually, for, for most of us, you know, our taking the picture is, is something that we do one to one or with groups of friends or people. So it's it you know, has, has been a social pursuit for, for many people. And I think if we lost that, I think we'd be losing a great deal. And I suspect the quality of our photography would not be improved by doing so. But, you know, I think, yeah, I, I love the way photography is going at the moment in this return to analog and actually marrying the digital and the analog technologies to a so-called sort of hybrid. So you get the best of both worlds. You, you can produce a collodion negative, which, you know, which I've done, and then you can scan it. So you can then have that digital file on your computer, print it through an inkjet or, or just look at it on screen. But you get the best then of both worlds. You get the quality from the, the collodion plate. And the, and the ease and the, the the ability to do things with it through you know digital technology on our on our laptops and then print it or share it in a, in a way that we couldn't do with that glass plate. So yeah, I think the hy- hybridization, if that's a word, um, photography is is something to be celebrated and and taken advantage of. And I'm sure yeah the next step will be how you know, digital technology is is. Hybridized again, if that's another word, to to artificial intelligence or to what comes next. Because I think photographers are great at looking back and, and bringing the best of the past and the best of what's gone before them, and bringing that to the fore and using it with their current practice, whether they're artists or whether they're professionals, and bringing something different to their photography. And I think that's great.
0: I think it's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. Dr. Michael Pritchard, author of A History of Photography and 50 Cameras. Is there still a camera that you seek that is not in your collection?
1: Yeah, there is actually. Well, I'm still looking for an original Kodak and an Ermanox an Erman just because they represent something really interesting and important for the history of photography. So you know, I like to collect some of those landmark cameras because of what they represent. So if anyone
0: out there has one,
1: drop me an email sometime.
0: You never know. You just never know who's listening. Live live in hope. Live in hope. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the Photo Detective. Thanks, Maureen. Really nice to be here. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me. These images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to maureentaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.